Welcome to Storytelling with Seth, a place where I honestly and as authentically as possible attempt to share with you stories I discover. Some of them are in the news, some of them are a bit of word of mouth or something whispered in the ear, and others are those rare opportunities where I get the chance to sit down with someone and talk to them about their story and in turn share it with you. I really hope you enjoy every story here on Storytelling with Seth, but there's really only one way I can know, and that's if you let me know. If you're using the Anchor platform to listen to this, you can go ahead and leave me a voice message, and I'd be happy to share it on this podcast. However, you can also reach out to me through email at sethsingleton at gmail.com, as well as on various social media platforms like Instagram, where I'm Seth the Writer, Twitter, where I'm at one more singleton, or on Facebook, Seth Singleton Storyteller. Please feel free to reach out on the platform you feel the most comfortable with so that I can hear what you like, what you don't like, and more importantly, so that together we can share our stories with each other. And now that I've given you an idea of what this is and what to expect, the only thing now, or the only thing left to do now, is to tell a story. Let's get started, shall we? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good whatever time of day you happen to be tuning in. Whether it's here in the continental United States where I'm currently residing, or somewhere else around the world, because I have noticed on occasion that we get listeners from everywhere. And that's always a fun thing to enjoy. So hello to wherever you are. It's time for another weekly edition of Storytelling with Seth, something that until now I've been calling the weekly wrap. But I must be aware, as I tend to, while looking at news and information sources, that there are at least two larger and much more well-known organizations that use the wrap and also weekly as the title of their news aggregate and sharing programming. Keeping that all in mind, I'm aware of the possibility that it might be time to narrow down my name for this series of programs where I get a chance to share some news and examples of great storytelling with you to something that focuses a little bit more on the story and storytelling aspects that I'm trying to focus on by sharing each one of these stories. I am, of course, always open to suggestions, and you can reach out to me on social media or just by leaving me a voice message through the Anchor app, or really, whatever way you feel works best for you, let me know, because I think change is part of the progression of all great stories. I'd like to think that my story is going to include, as it already has included, numerous forms of change. And if I'm going to be responsive to that, then hearing the best ideas from you and having the chance to change with each one of them is an opportunity I don't want to pass up. With that in mind, it's time for a new episode, and we've got some great stories coming in for you today. I'm looking at a great time that I had chatting with the gang from DC Comics News while we got to sit down with author Jason Inman and talk about his new book, Super Soldiers. Connecting the 
really many examples that exist in comic books of heroes and villains who have military service records, either previous or active. But before we get to that, a couple of other stories that really caught my attention. The first, the Fredericton Living Library, and something that caught my attention and refused to let go. The idea about a living library, a place where people can be checked out and, for 20 minutes, tell you their story through their experiences and allow you to engage with a biography in a way that's not tied to strictly the written form or maybe even a videotape, but instead a personal engagement and a one-on-one interaction. I also love this story about drawing Israeli and Palestinian superheroes, about a former artist for DC and Marvel Comics who now has settled in one of Israel's bank settlements, and while there is finding the superheroic people on both sides, both Israeli and Palestinian, and by drawing them, making the connection between the superheroes that exist and the people that we engage with every day and who make up our community. And then In addition to the Jason Inman interview and those two stories, I've also got this great one I just stumbled upon and was lucky enough to add in right before I got ready to publish this episode. And it's the story about a place in Brooklyn called Loot, where kids can create and sell their own comics, keeping 90% of the profits while also being part of a community where you can become a member for 30 bucks a month and have access to over 3,000 comic book titles from numerous, multiple various publishers. I think this is a great idea and I love talking about it. Stay tuned for that segment and more as we dive into this episode of Storytelling with Seth. The story that I'm about to talk about is one that I bookmarked way back in April 10th with the honest intention of following up again right around now. And it's only as I've come across it that I'm aware of this goal that I had in mind, how it's since come and passed, and yet how, despite all that, there's still a great story here I think you'll want to know about. It's about New Brunswick and the town of Fredericton, and a project called A Living Library that was actually just held from June 21st through June 23rd. It was part of a cultural expressions festival, and the concept provided the opportunity for people to come to the public library, the Fredericton Public Library, and check out a person. It's a joint effort between the city and the library, and also the Multicultural Association of Fredericton. The project recruits about 20 people, or more, to become, for at least a few hours, a living book about their lives and their experiences as immigrants. It's called a living library in an attempt to dismantle stereotypes that might exist around anyone, should they just be met on the street. And so their presentation in a library sets them up in a different light and might make them a bit more accessible to others who would perhaps like to know about their story, given that they're providing it in such an open forum. Participants will have a book cover, and a bio so that those interested can read over and decide whether or not they want to check that person out. 
for up to 20 minutes. Now, the concept came around way back in the 90s after this gentleman named Ronnie Abergel, who is Danish and whose friend was repeated stabbed, <laughs> excuse me, was stabbed repeatedly. And for no reason that could be discerned, there was actually uh, an investigation, and it was by two young people, and this friend named Christian essentially started Ronnie down a path towards anti-violence work. And eight years later, he was sitting down with this idea that if relation, if understanding could be created, that would help break down many of the stereotypes that exist around people who either aren't part of our community or are new to our community or may be strangers to us when we join a new community. And that by breaking down the stereotype, people will step out of their boxes and the opportunity for violence can be limited because of the degree of understanding that's developed. I really like this idea. I think so many stories are really difficult to write down. You need the time, you need the paper, you need the pen. And I can honestly say that from more than a few projects that I've been working on, despite what your schedule or intention might be, life gets in the way. And unless you have all the free time in the world to use all of the 24 hours in each day to do whatever you want, whatever you need, and still also find time to write something down, perhaps more than just a line or a sentence or even a page, it's really difficult to share your story in any way that might feel meaningful or that can have any uh, direct response or even create this relation. By having each person provide their story, uh, one, as told through the oral tradition, and two, in an environment or a format that is face-to-face -face and somewhat direct, I think there is the potential here to create, I guess, in many ways, a living history that can be passed down, much like the oral tradition has done, and can be another way for stories to become accessible for everyone so that they're not limited to what we can find in books or in print or online, or more importantly, through other digital and technical opportunities, YouTube and podcasts. That the idea is, if you're open to it, and if it's something that you're willing to access or access, then you can go to a library, meet with a living person, and hear a story that you might not be aware of simply because there would have been no opportunity for you to create a connection with that person and engage with them in a way outside of that library that would enable them to share their story and for you to hear it. I'm intrigued to find out more about how this living library continues and if it does, whether or not it thrives and if there are any sort of gems that are gleaned from this sort of experience that can help it grow 
and also help reinforce what it believed would happen with the knowledge of what has actually happened. And overall, I feel that so many times the best stories that we remember are the ones that we hear when they are told. It's one of the reasons why I believe that when I sit down and make a recording and a new episode and share these stories with you, that my communicating to them to you this way will have a deeper connection than if you had just sat down, glanced at the title, and may or not have had the chance to read about this story. And I feel that there's a great connection between the oral tradition that I'm trying to participate in through the podcast and the oral and visual tradition that is being demonstrated by Fredericton and its living library. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. I find it can be fairly difficult to come across a new story that inspires me in the same way that the stories I have come to treasure were able to do at a time when maybe I was less skeptical, more willing to accept or consider. And I know that with each year, my age challenges my willingness to look at new things. So I can only imagine what it would be like to be 63 years old and to, upon discovering that I had Jewish roots, return to Israel and end up in a settlement in the occupied West Bank. But that's exactly what happened in this story that's titled From Batman to Holy Land, a comic artist who sees heroes on all sides, written by Renat Haraj and Dan Williams. Now, this one was published in Reuters just a few days ago, um, but it's something that really caught my attention because I really like the idea behind it. Now, the story is about a gentleman named Michael Netzer, who was born Mike Nasser to U.S. Lebanese uh, Drew's parents, and he developed quite a reputation and had a portfolio that was once known for his skill in rendering Batman and Wonder Woman as cover images on the page. He discovered that art was a powerful release from childhood polio, and he gained quite a reputation working for franchises that included Marvel and DC Comics, until his eventual discovery of his Jewish roots and his decision to move to the occupied West Bank. Now, at the age of 63, a time farther away from me than I can probably understand, but will hopefully relate to when I reach it, and one of the reasons why I also hope that I can try to stay as open as I was when I was younger and be that open when I reach the age of 63. Netzer now paints portraits or superhero reproductions on commission, and he sells them to a clientele that is most often Palestinian, which creates a very unusual interaction for an Israeli religious settler. He takes to the road on occasion, sketching passerbys for free, passing them out, sharing his love, and in the process, he has the opportunity to earn a little bit of money when he does a commission. 
I like this quote that he has, which says, It's like people are the most interesting thing that there is. And I look at the face, and I see, you know, God looking back at me. One of the subjects that he features is Andy Jabur, a 24-year-old conservative Muslim woman from the Israeli Arab village of Abu Ghosh, who seems to agree with him. She sat for him on a Jerusalem pedestrian thoroughfare, and after assessing his pencil sketch result, exclaimed that he was amazing and that he expresses his soul through the picture. He lived in post-70s, 1970s, Lebanon, and he acknowledges that tensions between Israelis and Palestinians are rising again, especially as the U.S. has made strides to involve itself in what has been considered a long-stalled peacemaking initiative. Interestingly, his viewpoint has allowed him to consider a number of different things. He currently views Donald Trump as a very polarizing figure who he recognizes is fighting a war with China that could be seen as just, and he points out that his backers believe that there is something very heroic to him. However, on the other hand, he has to admit that the way that Trump has risen has led to his becoming something of an antithesis of a hero, of a good guy, it seems. And that creates quite an interesting challenge. After skewing the commercial success that he enjoyed, uh, including what has been claimed to be the sketch for a 1981 comic strip, which has now become an iconic moment in the film, that of Spider-Man hanging upside down and receiving a kiss from Mary Jane. He proceeded to work on Israeli comics and an Israeli comic superhero known as Uri On or Virility Uri, whose nemesis has tended to be concocted villains rather than representations of Israel's real-life foes. He points out that he's become sensitive to the use of propaganda, and doesn't want his art to be used to advance an idea that may or not be something he's attached to. And this is probably one of the reasons that led him to slow down and to consider that because of the power of his art, he's made a decision that he doesn't want to upset people. He's described as someone who has been able to find a way to depict everyday citizens as superheroes, and that these are citizens who exist on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that perhaps by extending his art in this way, he will have the opportunity to do more with his art than he feels that in some ways he has been limited in his desire to not hurt people. Perhaps by continuing this process of sketching members from both communities in a positive light, He's already extending his art in a way that won't be recognized until many years later, if ever at all, and yet might still have that amazing influence that can theoretically impact a world, change a conflict, or lead to a change and a resolution. I really enjoyed this story about Michael Netzer, and I love the idea of an artist who can see the heroes everywhere. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. This is a story that I really enjoyed. 
And it has to do with a conversation I got to have with a emerging author named Jason Inman and the podcast interview that I got to conduct with the DC Comics News podcast team. Jason has written a book called Super Soldiers, and it's this really great look and investigation connecting all of the different examples that exist in the world of Marvel, DC, and all brands of comic books where the superhero or the villain has a direct connection to previous or present military service. I thought it was an amazing book. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy so that I could read it and be prepared for our conversation. And I enjoyed asking Jason about a lot of the different connections that he was able to find. Not only did he bring up classic Marvel superheroes like Captain America or Captain Marvel or even Iron Man former sidekick and now complete individual superhero James Rhodey Rhodes, who became War Machine, but the DC Comics side of the world, where Sergeant Rock was shadowed by a really interesting character named Gravedigger, a character Ulysses Hazard, and his story of fighting to become an equal member of the U.S. Fighting Force. This was a great conversation that allowed us to sort of understand parts of Jason's process, learn about why it was he couldn't include every superhero in his book, and also about a few little discoveries regarding who he got to talk to, who was involved with helping him promote his book by providing a great uh, pull quote or teaser quote that could be placed on the actual jacket of the book or included, and also a few surprising stories about how, of all people, Beetle Bailey fit perfectly into his book about comic book characters, superheroes, and villains with a connection to the military. I've got a great excerpt here I'd love to share with you. Go ahead and take a listen, and I'd love to hear your thoughts if you haven't heard it on the DC Comics News podcast already. All right, welcome DC fans to another episode of DC Comics News Podcast. This is episode 29. I am Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Uh, today with me, I have DCN reviewer and host of the Spinner Act Podcast, Mr. Seth Singleton. Seth, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Really looking forward to a great conversation, as always, with a great group. Thank you. And joining us, uh, we also have DCN reviewer and news writer, Brad Felicki. How are you doing today, Brad? I'm doing great. Happy to be and, here. And last but not least, you may know him as the former host of DC All Access. You may know him from the movie Trivia Schmodown, where he was the Intergeekdom champion. Or perhaps you know him from the amazing podcast Geek History Lesson. Joining us today is the one, the only, Mr. Jason Inman. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be able to show up at Metropolis and talk about everything DC Comics, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to start off talking a little bit about your upcoming book, uh, Super Soldiers, a salute to the comic book heroes and villains who fought for their country. Uh, you were gracious enough to send us a copy of this to read. And I got to say, this was uh, an amazing book to sit down and read. I loved every oh, second thank you. of it. 
Um, so I just wanted to start off. Obviously, you know, you were in the military, and, and military stuff is is very important to you. I know you even do a uh, an annual comic book drive for soldiers. So I just kind of wanted to, you know, kind of ask what got you interested in military in the first place. Uh, well, you know, I was when I was in high school. I come from a small town in Kansas, you know, very similar to Superman. <laughs> And I, you know, listened to that recruiter's pitch, and I liked the idea of being able to travel the world and see places that I had never seen before. And to be honest with you, I think I had a little bit of my heart of the hero's call of, you know, wanting to do something more than myself. And 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 that's how I joined uh, the Army National Guard, and then later the Army, and, and and signed on the dotted line and started traveling the world and stuff. So. Obviously, it means a lot to you, and so you decided you wanted to write a book. How did that all come about? You know, uh, you know getting the chance to write the book, getting the idea for the book. How, how did that all come about? Well, I've had the idea for the book for quite a while because there are so many correlations between comic books and the military. There are so many comic book characters that are in the military, and there are so many soldiers and airmen and Marines and, and sailors that are fans of comic books. So I, I knew I wanted to do something that sort of talked about both those worlds and how much they're connected. A uh, fun fact, I was actually out last year pitching a uh, Superman book, uh, a nonfiction Superman book, because uh, in secret I have been interviewing Superman creators in the background for about mm, four to five years now, and I've been oh, wow. saving all these answers. And I have about 60 pages of a really cool Superman book, and I pitched it to the publisher that eventually published Super Soldiers, Mango, and they were like, oh, we don't think this is the right year for a Superman book. What else do you got? And then I gave them a short description of what became the book Super Soldiers. And they were like, we like that. Uh, get it to us by December. <laughs> oh, wow. And as any writer <laughs> will tell you, when a, when a publisher of any type says, get it to us by this date, you, you do it. Well, I, I mean, I'm definitely interested in that Superman book, though, I have to say. I hope oh, it does uh, happen. It'll come. I I, I, I kind of think that maybe I, it might be parked until like the 80th. Uh, or wait, it's already been the 80th, or maybe the 85th, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. So I know that uh, Seth and Brad had some questions, so uh, I'm going to hop over to Seth and let him uh, ask a couple of his questions. Hey, Jason. Thanks for, uh, again, uh, letting us have the chance to read your book. I enjoyed every page. And My pleasure. Um, it's it's really hard for me to narrow down some of these questions, but the first one that really comes to mind is, would you mind just explaining how you and the editor and the publishers came to your finals list, which you referenced as being like a Sophie's choice in your honorable mentions? And uh, what part of that process might leave open the chance for a sequel or an expanded version or updated somewhere down the line to include some of the characters you do maybe didn't get a chance to this time? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, luckily, my publisher had absolutely no say in my final list. Um, that was completely up to me. So um, as I was getting down the line towards the end of the process, and I was writing most of the book, um, my original list actually for this book was 20. I had 20 characters that I wanted to talk about. And in the final version of the book, I had 16. Now, I realized that I could, you know, do all 20 but it would, I would have needed more time to write that. And 
eventually I just decided, no, it's better to, to expand more on the 16. Now, there are a lot of heroes that I left out, and I put a, I have an honorable mention chapter, but eventually the list got knocked down about who had similar stories. Like, whose stories or whose military experiences are basically the same, and who do I think is, like, the best representation of that person? Now, I know the one that I'm going to get the most flack on is Wolverine, uh, because I've already <laughs> been talking about the book. Everybody's like, was Wolverine in it? And and I, I I sort of had to come up with arbitrary reasons for why I didn't include those people in the book. And Wolverine, it basically came down to that he served in the Canadian military. I never served in the Canadian military. So I really couldn't talk about that or be an expert on that. Now, I would love to do an expanded version of this or a revised version, you know, down the line someday. And I think if I did Wolverine and some of those characters that you see in the um, honorable mentions chapter, including Wonder Woman, who many people don't may not realize was an army nurse. Um, I would love to bring some of them up to the the main text. I think that would make for a really great revised edition. I know I would really look forward to because when I saw your honorable mentions list, I immediately thought to myself how much I would enjoy reading about those. So I'm really looking forward to that opportunity when it presents itself down the line, because in my opinion, this should be a great success. I'm looking forward to hearing everybody else's feedback um, as much as I did with the blurbs, which was one of my other questions, if you don't mind me just following up with that. You have so many great blurbs. Is there a favorite story you have or two about getting someone's feedback or blurb? Because, I mean, you have so many great names on there from Dan Aykroyd to the who's who of comic. Uh, any particular favorite story you have about getting one of those uh, responses or quotes that you were able to include with this book? Um, I have a, I totally have a couple of stories. Yeah, I have some great endorsements on this book. And I, I try to treat every book I write Every product I write, like it might be the last, like it might be the last comic book write. I might be the last podcast I ever record. And so for this one, I, I went to the big leagues and I cold emailed a lot of people that I'd never met before, but people that I really admired. And most of them said yes, like Brad Meltzer, who wrote Identity Crisis, who's a great uh, novelist, his own right. Uh, I don't really know Brad, but I, I sent him a very lovely email and he luckily gave it back to me. Um, but the one that was completely gracious and came from a stranger is uh, Mr. Dan Aykroyd himself, uh, you know, the man who co-wrote Ghostbusters. Um, the story of how I got his recommendation and how he got to read the book early is very interesting because I didn't know this until very recently. He's a big supporter of veterans, and that's the reason why police and firefighters and soldiers are always in all every one of the Ghostbusters movies. That's Dan. He makes sure that that happens because he respects them so much. And my wife, yeah, it's really cool. Right. I, I wish mm -hmm. they would advertise it more. And my wife got to do the 35th anniversary fan commentary for the Ghostbusters Blu-ray. It's coming out in a couple months. Um, they, they reached out to her because of our podcast and she got invited. And when she was waiting to record, um, that podcast, Dan Aykroyd was there, and she had a conversation with Dan Aykroyd, and uh, in their conversation, she brought up that I was writing this book, and he said, uh, well, send me a copy. I'd love to read it. So I sent him an advanced copy of the book and wrote him a very nice message and said, you know, you met my wife and very lovely, and if you like the book, I'd love if you gave me a quote for it. And about three weeks later... Uh, Mr. Aykroyd, I had an email from Dan Aykroyd in my inbox and, and he said, really enjoyed it. Here's your quote. 
And, uh, it, you know, it blew my mind because, again, a lot of people come to Dan Aykroyd as an actor, and that's definitely, like, one of his main careers. But I think that Ghostbusters is one of the best movie screenplays that has ever been written. So I've always respected him as a writer. So the fact that he semi-enjoyed, or, or maybe he's a great liar, but that he semi-enjoyed uh, anything that I wrote <laughs> is astounding. Uh, that is a really great story. That's that's uh, that's perfect. And the Brad Meltzer one, that one just shows Moxie, my friend. That just shows <laughs> just going for it. So I really I love, love that. Yeah. I love Identity Crisis, and I love a lot of his novels. So that's why I was like, I'm gonna here we go. Uh, but um, uh, some some of the other people I was just lucky enough to meet, and I stayed in contact during my time at DC. Like, um, I I can now say that I'm I'm friends with Dan Jurgens, which is which is astounding. I met him through DC, and some of the other comic book creators as well. Like, I was lucky enough that I've interviewed them in my past. Um, and I reached out to them because I respect their work and they, they graciously uh, gave me some words. Wow. Yeah. Those are, that's a great friend to, uh, to go ahead and reference for a, a comment like that. And a great thing to know that you've got a, a friend like that, that you can reach out to and get their kind of feedback uh, because it was another example of just great praise of this work. I know that before I completely try and monopolize this whole thing, Brad, I'd love to turn it over to you for one or two questions, and then I'm happy to come back with a couple of follow-up. Um, but I love that I just got uh, two great answers to two great questions. Thank you, Jason. Those were awesome okay. stories. Okay, so I I was wondering, uh, you know, because nerd culture over, you know, over the past two decades has gone really mainstream, so I was I was curious when you were in the military, was there a lot of fandom in the military or was it something that you kind of had to, you know, just read on your own? Uh, there there wasn't a lot of fandom in in the military at all, especially because um, I was in the military from about 2000 to 2005. Um, so I was the only comic book nerd that I knew about. Um, and I and I started reading comic books openly because I. Honestly, you know, I was in a combat zone and I didn't care. So I just I was like, I'm going to read what I'm going to read. Um, fun fact, fandom sort of showed up in other ways. So the fandom, I think, was always out there. It just took modern MCU movies to bring it to the boil. Um, there were two things that I specifically remember from Iraq. One is um, when I was in Iraq or before Iraq, I can't remember around the time, the ultimate Spider-Man game video game came out. Uh, and that was the one that was cell shaded and it was like Brian Michael Bendis worked on it oh, and it was also yeah, connected yeah. to the comics. And it was a fun game. I, I remember and you every other level you flip to Venom. Um, that was a very popular game in Iraq. Um, everybody loved playing it. And I remember I had such a blast playing that game as well. Um, the other thing that uh, was a big deal is I can remember because I can't remember where, the, I think Smallville was in its fourth season or its fifth season at that time. And there was a box set of the five seasons of Smallville that had come out or the four seasons of Smallville that had come out at that point. And everybody in my unit devoured that show. Like huh. we, we, everybody wanted to watch it. And when you think about it, it's like a teenager show about Superman, right? And, and all these soldiers in a combat zone are like oh man did you see that episode of smallville what what about when the you know like he threw the crystal dude did you see that like those conversations were actually had in a combat zone <laughs> so i think that that's kind <laughs> that's of funny <laughs> i love it <laughs> 
And uh, my, I guess my other question would be, um, judging by your own experience in the military and just the experience of writing the book, uh, which of these characters was the hardest to write? And which character do you think, you know, in the comics had the most realistic depiction of military experience? Oh, it's so crazy. Um, I mean, the one that had the most, I think, realistic portrayal is honestly Isaiah Bradley. And oh, okay. uh, for, for people out there that don't know, that's the first Captain America in Marvel comic books continuity. He is a character from Truth, Red, White, and Black, where you discover that just like the Tuskegee experiments, the American government perfected the super soldier serum on an African-American before they did, they gave it to Steve Rogers. And that is the story about one of the guys that survives that trial. Um, I, I, I kind of think weirdly like uh, Isaiah Bradley, just how, um, and I'm not saying that like how all soldiers are treated that way, but like how he responds to the service and how he never gives up the call. Like there's something about his story that even I can relate to that I can. I, and I think a lot of service members out there would, Fun fact, the hardest character to write is probably Captain America. Hmm. Um, he he actually I thought he was going to be the the easiest chapter, you know, because we all know Captain America and we all kind of know what he is. But I discovered in my research that it wasn't until like the 1980s that he becomes a real person. Prior to the 1980s, he's sort of a walking recruitment poster who just says, I want you, buy war bonds, and, and loose lips sink ships. He, he's, he has no depth to himself. And it's not until you get to writers like Roger Stern or Mark Grunewald or Mark Wade and even Ed Brubaker that they start making Steve Rogers a real person. So I will say, like, the beginning of the Captain America chapter was, was really, really tough because I was essentially writing about an ideal – and not a real person, not a real man, not a real soldier. And um, so that that one, that actually writing that chapter is the whole reason why I decided to interject my personal stories into it, because okay. I originally wasn't going to do that. And then writing about that character made me be like, oh, man, I got to I don't know what's wrong. I got to I got to do something here. And then putting my own story in there suddenly opened up the gates and allowed me to write the rest of the book. Oh, great. That's a, that's a great story, too. Right. And Seth, do you have follow-ups? Uh, I do have uh, maybe one or two more. I'm not sure. you know, uh, trying to monopolize your time here, but I, I love your answers, and it's really just great to add on to what we've already gotten from the content in the book. I think maybe the first one that comes to mind is, uh, you, if you wouldn't mind, just talking about your decision to compare each character against the military code that they were trained to follow. Or that they uh, could be modeled their act, model their actions against, and um, not everyone lives up to those values, mm -hmm. and that makes for some really interesting contradictions and in judgments about their moral compasses. How was that process while writing about each character? Because, in many ways, some of the aspects of the code can seem extremely difficult, depending on the situation that they're placed in. Yeah, um, I, I totally understand that, and the, and yeah, some of those soldiers some of those examples yeah they're yeah they're not good examples they're then they fail to live up to it um but the interesting thing about that is that i needed a way or a baseline to sort of like judge all of these service members off of and 
I brought up the idea of each section of the military, I talk about this in the book, has their own code, has their own ideals that they strive for. And I think a lot of civilians don't know about that. And those ideals are beat into trainees in basic training. Like you, uh, I remember in the Army, in Army basic training, like the Army core values were just slammed into us over and over and over and over. And so I thought since every military person gets these core ideals from their section drilled into their brains, I thought that was a very interesting way to look at where did they deviate from them. Because that you're, you're, there are supposed to be a foundation for us and a foundation for our decisions and the way we act and how we engage on missions. Um, and a lot of them are very pure. A lot of them sound kind of like Superman. Like they would be impossible to always live up to. So it is interesting, I think, to to use the juxtaposition between these comic book characters and these perfect ideals, especially since we put comic book characters on such high pedestals. And if they don't act to these ideals, it's interesting to note that and it's interesting to to look at that. But but a lot of it, again, came from I, I don't know if a lot of civilians know about these core ideals. And I really hope you enjoyed that excerpt of our conversation with Jason Inman about his book, Super Soldiers. Just to remind you, those other voices you heard with me were DC Comics News Editor-in-Chief Joshua Rayner and DC Comics News News and comic book reviewer Brad Felicki. You can catch myself and Brad on the DC Comics News podcast on a mostly weekly basis. And also, every once in a while, we get that great guest appearance from Josh Rayner. I also recommend checking out the DC Comics News podcast because they get the chance and we get the chance to talk a lot more about DC Comics on that conversation than I get to on here. And sometimes a lot of the things that I get to talk about here on Storytelling with Seth are inspired or a byproduct of the conversations we had on the DC Comics News podcast. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. I make no secret of the fact that my lovely French bulldog, Bruno, is a snoring little puppy. And when he snores, try though I might, he's going to overwhelm anything I try and do. And even when he can't overwhelm it, he's going to find a way to lurk there in the background. So if you hear that snarbling, snoring roar as like a dull drone in the background, that would be Bruno. If you're wondering what got him so excited... Well, I've got an answer for that. See, this story out of CBR, originally known as Comic Book Resource, but colloquially now uh, recognized as CBR, introduced a story about Brooklyn and how a new place called Loot, all lowercase letters, will let kids create and sell their own comics. But it's more than just that. Let's start out with the basics, which is Loot is located in Brooklyn, New York, and currently it has a reading library of over 3,000 comics, all from various publishers. And you can access that library. Wow, I got squeaky there. (laughs) Maybe I'm excited. But you can access that library for $30 a month, and that access allows you to borrow an unlimited number of comics one at a time from Loot. And it's located right above Frank's Restaurant in Carroll Garden. 
So if you're out there in Brooklyn, you know where that is, and you want to give a comment about how you know where it's located or what you know about it through your own personal experience, that's a story we would all love to hear. And if you would like to just leave a comment and tag us in any way, that would be great. Or if you want to leave a voice message, that would be a fun way to hear about this. Time is of no concern for me, whether you send that message tomorrow or a year from today. It's still something I'd love to hear and share so that others can hear and share it. Because a story like this deserves a lot of attention. Now, comic books are also available to be purchased. Each one costs $5. But here's the real kicker for me. In addition to the Library of Comics, Loot will also let kids create and sell their own comics and keep 90% of the profits, with the remaining 10% covering credit card processing and, you know, other expenses. Basically, by borrowing excuse me, by buying, borrowing, and creating comics, kids can earn loot. There's a great quote here from the founder. His name is Joseph Einhorn. And he says, we have three different kids work on a comic together. One is the writer, one is the artist, and one to ink in the color. We'll have more information in the coming weeks and begin offering related classes. And he says, not only do we want to teach editorial skills, and build confidence in young people, we also want to help them make friends and learn to team build. Um, Loot's open every day from 10 to 6, and adults without children who want to visit have to make an appointment through Instagram. And I like this idea. There's a lot of beautiful pictures, and if you get a chance to check this story out through the link I'll provide to the uh, story again on CBR.com, Highly recommend checking it out, and please, once again, if you're in the Brooklyn area and you happen to wander on by Frank's Restaurant in Carroll Gardens and check out Loot, or if you're already active in the Loot community and you can let me and thereby anyone else who listens to this know a little bit about this place, I think it's a great idea, and I love when the East Coast, New York sets a trend because my hope then is at some point someone on the west coast is going to answer and then the great thing is watching everyone in between start filling in the gaps for the rest of the country so if you're out there and you have more to tell us about this maybe about a version of it you can share please reach out to us listen at the end for all those great ways and you can always check uh the page related to this podcast where there's ways to contact and let me know. Because this is a story that I would really love to hear some feedback on, especially because it's so new, and especially because I think it really has an opportunity to maybe change the comic book industry, or at least a section or percentage of it, in a way that's never really been experienced before. And that's going to bring a close to this episode of Storytelling with Seth. I've been your host, Seth Singleton, and I really enjoyed talking with you today about the Fredericton Living Library, about the artist who can find superheroes in his community, both Israeli and Palestinian, and about how in Brooklyn, New York, you, if you're a kid, can create and sell your own comics and keep 90% of the profits. Look forward to coming back to you next time with more stories that I'm lucky enough to stumble into and lucky enough to stumble upon so that I can share them with you. 
Remember, you can always reach out to me on various social media channels, whether it's Instagram at SetTheWriter, Twitter at One More Singleton, my own personal website, Seth Singleton Storyteller, or if you just want to drop me an email, Seth Singleton at gmail.com. I look forward to sharing the next round of stories with you. And again, if you think you've got a great name that should go with this segment, I'd love to hear it. And you've got all those great social media and even email ways to let me know. Thanks for joining me this time. Can't wait to sit down with you next time for another edition.